I am confident that no one joining today's WIHI is happy about the health care disparities that persist in the U.S. healthcare system and in other countries as well. The reasons for this are historical, cultural, socioeconomic, and racial. They're also due to entrenched behaviors and attitudes among healthcare professionals that live on, sometimes in subtle ways, and that reflect all kinds of biases, including ones that pertain to gender and sexuality. Mountains of research in the past few decades have documented gaps in outcomes and treatment, especially along racial and ethnic lines. So it's significant to finally see studies and to hear about work in the solutions column. And we have some of that work to share with you today as we focus on equity gap-closing strategies on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're in our fifth year of coming to you bi-weekly and also for later listening and convenience via iTunes and on IHI.org. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. The good news and the complicated news, I suppose, is that there's no single strategy and no science of reducing healthcare disparities to share, at least not yet, but there are definitely focused interventions to learn from and to further everyone's ambitions in this space, and we have a terrific panel assembled. If you like to use Twitter, uh, do go ahead and tweet, and if you wouldn't mind, use the hashtag IHI in your tweets, and that way we can bring others into the conversation who may not be part of the show today. I'm going to now briefly introduce our guests, and a reminder that longer bios about all of them are on the WIHI webpages on IHI.org, and also those slides that John mentioned that you can download when you get off the program today. So starting on the phone, over in England, we have Yvonne Coghill, who is Senior Program Lead for the Inclusion Workstream of the NHS Leadership Academy. She's held numerous positions in the NHS, and last year, her colleagues voted her among the 50 most inspirational women and one of the top 50 black minority ethnic pioneers. Some of us have had the pleasure to work with Yvonne here at IHI and at some of our forums, and we're so thrilled, Yvonne, that you could be part of our show today. Welcome. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. All right, great. Also on the phone, back in the U.S., in Minnesota, David Johnson has been with Health Partners Medical Group since 2003, and he's a regional clinic director in primary care. He has also served as co-chair of the HPMG, Health Partners Medical Group Disparities Oversight Team. Glad you're with us, David. Welcome. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. Okay. And at David's side is his colleague, Tessa Kirby, who joined Health Partners in 2007 and is currently the Manager of Measurement and Organizational Improvement. Welcome, Tessa. So glad you're here as well. Glad to be here. Thanks. Okay. Here in the studio in Cambridge, Mass, excuse me, it's a pleasure to welcome Andrew Lair, who's a general surgery resident at Massachusetts General Hospital and a prior research fellow at the Codman Center. Andrew's research focuses on the impact of domestic health policy on surgical practice, and he has a particular interest in access to and outcomes of surgical care for low-income and marginalized populations. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you for the introduction. Okay. And last but never least is IHI's own Don Goldman. Don is an infectious disease specialist, and he's also chief medical and scientific officer at IHI, working on strengthening ties with the health services research in academic communities. And welcome, Don. 
Thank you. All right. Well, we're going to get started, and Don is going to really do a little bit of framing. Um, there are many, many people uh, here at IHI, and some of them are in the studio and don't necessarily have formal speaking parts, um, who have really been um, hard at work with me um, and Don teeing up this program, um, and it's kind of the first of many things or, that you'll be hearing about uh, in in this uh, topic area, and Don's going to help um, help us understand that. Don, Don IHI has been embracing equity. We've certainly been talking about it for a long time, um, often using the IOM's Crossing the Quality Chasm goals, which has equity uh, as one of the very important uh, goals there to close gaps. This is still an anchoring outlook for IHI and also, I dare say, for many of the organizations who are joining us today. But it's clearly not enough, and I wonder if you could sort of Take us on the journey of what gets us to this point today. Welcome again. Sure. Well, thank you, Madge. And you said it very well at the outset of the program when you noted that countless studies have documented significant and, frankly, often astonishing disparities in health uh, and health care in the United States. And these disparities are pervasive, but I think we'll agree that they impact especially severely uh, on those Americans who are poor, who are black, and who are Hispanic. And the simple fact of the matter is that everyone, everyone in the United States uh, requires and deserves the highest possible uh, care, uh, quality care we can provide. So I'm a health services researcher, and I review for a number of peer-reviewed journals, and I can tell you frankly, uh, I'm not really interested in seeing yet more studies that simply document disparities but don't demonstrate what we need to do to address them. Uh, and I'm also not really interested in seeing yet another grant or contract opportunity from the government or from a foundation that simply asks researchers to show that they're including minorities in their studies, when what they should be asking them is how they plan to address those disparities that they find and document. So given the number of papers and studies on the subject of disparities, it's actually disheartening, Madge, uh, to see how few actually provide solutions to these pressing problems, and that's why I'm looking forward to hearing from the participants uh, today. For quality improvers, such as those of us in the room and those people out there in Radioland, uh, the current situation provides us both an opportunity and a challenge. There's an opportunity to show that attention to the fundamentals of scientific improvement can make a difference. Uh, it's a challenge because it is quite unlikely that what sometimes occurs is we use quality improvement to lift all boats, and put that in quotes, uh, without paying attention to the special needs and circumstances of minority populations. And that strategy just plain won't work. It's also a challenge because the efforts have to be made at multiple levels, and in quality improvement, sometimes we focus on one level, the level that we're working in, rather than all six that I think are important. And these levels include the individual, obviously individual people, the providers, the clinicians who care for them, the communities in which they live, the microsystems in which uh, some of you work, uh, be they wards or clinics, uh, the healthcare system as a whole, and then policy and payment, the kinds of things that legislators legislators and, and CMS and so forth uh, are in charge of. And IHI needs to be part of the solution to these opportunities and challenges, uh, and progress towards uh, higher quality safety and value will be hollow uh, if we don't achieve equity. And I think we have to keep that in front of us every day uh, as our special obligation, our special challenge. 
Now, Madge, you did note that there's a lot going on uh, here at IHI to improve our diversity and to increase our focus on equity. Uh, and if uh, any of you want to come visit us here at IHI to see some true energy and commitment, you'll find it in our very active diversity and inclusion uh, council, uh, which is developing content for the open school and focusing the entire organization on the need to demonstrate the solutions for disparities. And some of those folks are in the room. I can feel their, I can feel the vibe here. It's, it's just great to have you have you with us. It keeps us keeps us focused. Uh, a number of our fellowship alumni who work in the safety net are passionate advocates for equity, and we've developed some uh, interesting and important ties to other programs that focus on the safety net and minority health, such as the Mongan Commonwealth Fund uh, Fellowship in Minority Health Policy, a really great program if you haven't heard of it, over at Harvard, and the fellowship sponsored by America's Essential Hospitals, which some of you may know better as NAPH, its former name. We collaborate with a lot of people. I just want to call out, probably they're on the line here, Joe Betancourt at the Disparity Solutions Center at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital and Marshall Chin at the University of Chicago. And we're involved in several national programs that are trying to address disparities, especially in maternal and neonatal health. Uh, but this uh, clearly isn't enough. And we look forward to uh, partnering with you. And this is a, a real uh, invitation, partnering with those of you on this call who are passionate and committed to finding solutions to the disparities that plague our nation. Uh, so uh, I, I always like to conclude almost any talk I give that has to do with quality and safety with uh, a challenge to all of us. We, we're always talking about bending the cost curve, and I think bending the cost curve and showing value is really important. But I, I'm always thinking about uh, Martin Luther King's uh, focus on the justice curve and when we're going to start bending that. You know, uh, uh, Martin Luther King said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And from my point of view, it's bending exceedingly slow. And I, Chai, and those of you on the call, those in the room here, uh, need to accelerate that. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Don Goldman, uh, for kicking this off with a, a great challenge and a, a bit of background that I think is very valuable. All right, let's let's get into some of this concrete now. Uh, Tessa and David, I turn to you at Health Partners. There's an impressive story to tell about reducing health disparities in uh, some clinical work that you've been doing. The small or short time that you've got on this program uh, to talk about this work that's been going on for the past decade can't begin to do justice to it, but hopefully we can uh, set the table with some of that information and folks can always follow. Follow up. So I turn to uh, whoever's going to go first, David or Tessa, uh, tell us what's been happening. Thanks, Madge. I'm going to go first. I'm just going to set the stage, uh, give a little background, and then Dave's going to talk about some of the work we're actually doing, which is what we all really want to hear about. Um, so we just we really started on this work really early on back in 2001 in response to the Institute of Medicine's uh, aims to include equitable care in our work, and that's really where we started. I think our vital first step was in 2004 when we started to collect self-reported um, self-reported race and uh, preferred language from our patients, um, and at the same time concurrently researching gaps locally, nationally, uh, engaging our community members to help them identify where did they think the real gaps were uh, and where areas where we should seek to improve. Uh, from that data, we were able to take a look and actually see some of our gaps. Uh, most importantly, the ones that really came out first to us were breast cancer screening and colorectal screening, where we had gaps, double-digit gaps that were, you know, un unacceptable. So we immediately started to 
work on those two areas and then expanded from there. So those are two areas we're really focused on. I'll pass it off to Dave to talk about what we did with them. Thanks, Tessa. Um, well, and I, I think Don um, really kind of uh, stated it well um, at first. And within the medical group here, you know, we, we got kind of tired of, of thinking about, we know the disparities are there. We have now have the data to prove that. And really it becomes, as a, as a, a medical group or practice system, what are you going to do about it? And um, so to that end, back in about 2007, 2008, once we had uh, race and language data on 90-plus percent of our patients in our electronic record, we could uh, really report any of our quality measures, and I would also say patient experience measures, um, based on race. Um, the other way we look at disparities, which I think is important for us to keep in context with this call, is, is racial disparities, but also uh, socioeconomic disparities. And so we look at our disparities both uh, uh, by race and by payer, so uh, commercially insured versus government-insured patients. And uh, the data you have and some of the slides we supplied really focuses on the, the race uh, disparity gap, but I just wanted to call out that payer gap is also significant. Um, we started uh, back in 2009, if I take some of our uh, primary um, uh, gaps that Tessa alluded to in, in diabetes, um, you know, we had a, uh, a quite a large gap. We had optimal diabetic care for our patients of color of 19%. Uh, uh, we had a, a gap of 8% for mammography screening between our white patients and patients of color. And we had a gap of 26% between our, um, for colorectal cancer screening between our, uh, again, our white patients and patients of color. And uh, the slides you have kind of demonstrate some of the improvement we've seen over the past uh, five years or so on those measures. Um, for diabetes, we're now at uh, uh, optimal diabetic rate of 40% for our patients of color, so we doubled uh, the optimal diabetic measure for that group of patients. For comparison, our white patients are at 49% optimal diabetic. This is the end of 2013. I'm reporting uh, those numbers. We decreased the disparity gap for mammography screening from 8 to 4, so essentially cut it in half. And Don mentioned another important point. Um, a lot of times the interventions we, we think of and the systems we have in place, you know, raise the screening rate for all. And actually, some of those can increase the disparity gap. So what we've kind of called our, our holy grail or gold standard of our disparity work here is uh, raising the screening rates or the optimal diabetic rates for all while decreasing at the same time the disparity. Um, and so with mammography, we ended, ended uh, 2013 at 85% screening rate and, again, decreased, you know, we reached a, a disparity gap of only 4%. For colorectal cancer screening, we had a disparity gap of 26%. And, again, we cut that in half over the course of about five years to uh, 13%. And then at the end of uh, this last year, we were at an overall colorectal cancer screening rate of 75%. So, again, raising the screening rates for all while de decreasing the disparity gaps. Um, I could speak just for a few minutes on some uh, uh, interventions that have been specific to this work. Just what um, I was thinking about. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, is that okay, Matt? So, yes, no, that's exactly what I was thinking of, sort of what might kind of come forward as some of the key interventions. Yeah. Sure. 
And uh, I think some of our key things we've done is really uh, outreach to the uh, community of patients, our patients of color, uh, via uh, uh, either telephone, simple outreach to those that were due for screenings, or bringing them in and doing focus groups with groups of patients from different uh, racial groups to, to find out are there ways we could reach out, do better education and awareness, and uh, create uh, a, a sense of a need for these services among different communities. And, and raise sort of their awareness of that need. And uh, we've had a lot of success with outreach phone calls. We make about 10,000 phone calls a year, uh, both for mammography and colorectal cancer screening to our patients of color. Um, we also, with mammography, instituted same-day mammography services at our mammography sites. And again, those are open to all patients, but they were really targeted at patients once they left our clinics for their primary care visits, where we're going to see them again for their screening services. So sometimes the best way to, to get engagement on that and to get the screening done is to make sure they can do it at the time they're there. That's convenient for them. And we worked hard with our radiology partners to make that happen. We do about 7,000 same-day mammograms per year uh, on our entire population. Uh, one important intervention uh, that helped us with our disparity numbers for colorectal cancer screening was the offering of the FIT test as a option along with colonoscopy. And uh, there's been literature about this, but uh, essentially just offering uh, patients' choice uh, will increase the likelihood that they'll actually select and follow through with a, a screening service. And so uh, for years, kind of pushing colonoscopy as that gold standard without another choice, just in the last few years offering FIT, uh, which is a home test, fecal test, as an option, uh, there's pros and cons to both tests, but we've kind of taken the, the approach that the best screening test is the one the patient will actually do. And um, offering choice has helped us quite a bit with increasing our screening rates for colorectal cancer screening. Um, another tactic that we've instituted were uh, culturally specific or race-specific screening days. For instance, Hmong Women's Mammography Day or a Somali uh, Women's Screening Day. And it wasn't just about getting their screening, it was about learning from them. So we would actually have one of our Hmong physicians or Somali physicians sit down with a group of the women coming in for their screening and kind of go through questions about how we could involve and engage the community in a greater way. And uh, that's been very helpful for a lot of our work. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So just a, a taste of some very, very important and powerful things that I'm sure were worked on and uh, revised and improved along the way. Hopefully uh, we'll get into a little more of this during Q&A. But thanks, Tessa and David from Health partners uh, for getting right to it on, on some interventions. I think that's what we're trying to do. Um, okay, so stand by. Let me go over to you, Yvonne. We'll jump the ocean here and to, <laughs> to the NHS. And uh, you're going to kind of take us into kind of the view from the leadership level and looking at the workforce and uh, tell us about this work and really what, what difference it makes uh, both for staff and for patients. Thanks, Yvonne. Okay, 
Okay, well, thank you. Thank you, Madge. I mean, I think people probably know that we have a, a tax-based system in the, in the NHS. So the NHS is actually an organisation that is for the people, by the people, and everybody in the NHS is, anybody, everybody in England is entitled to NHS care. We, we have a constitution, and the constitution, all staff are bound by that constitution who work in the NHS. And we're there basically to improve the health of, and well-being of everybody in the NHS. The first principle of the NHS is that we provide a comprehensive service to absolutely everybody and we actually say it within the first principle, irrespective of gender, race, disability, age, sexual orientation and these things are named because they are within our Equality Act. We have an Equality Act in, uh, which came out in 2010 which we're all bound by to make sure that there is equity in absolutely everything we do. So it's really important for every single member of staff in the NHS to actually get that and to make sure that all patients and all staff uh, are, are entitled to and get the same levels of care. The issues for us are um, that race is a real problem within the NHS and, I, and I've, I've listened to colleagues already on the line describing the, the difficulties and problems that people of colour have in, in the United States and it's not any different here. And the reason why I'm going to be focusing on race tonight is because we've actually had quite a lot of success with gender. Um, we know that a lot of the women, uh, a lot of the people that work in the NHS, 80% of the women that work, uh, people that work in the NHS are, are women. And uh, over the last two or 15 years or so, what's happened is that we put a lot of effort and a lot of um, emphasis on making sure that women get the opportunities that they need and deserve. And that's been incredibly successful in in, in England and over 40% of, of the women on boards are from uh, are, are women so that's really 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 good we also have a government that constantly talks about the importance of having um, women on boards making sure that we have this, uh, diversity on boards and that diversity is usually about women and in terms of sexuality we have uh, an organisation in, in the UK called Stonewall uh, that really really lobbies hard for, for gay rights and so on the issue for us is mostly around race, and the NHS does have a problem uh, with, with race. Um, and what we have in the NHS is 1.3 million people working in the NHS, and that's gone down from about 1.4 because of some of the changes. But 18% of the staff within the NHS are from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. That's a, that's a lot of staff. 28% of our doctors are from BME backgrounds, and 38% of um, hospital doctors are from BME backgrounds. Yet we only have 5% of senior leaders in the NHS from um, black and minority ethnic backgrounds. And, and just to put that into perspective, we have uh, probably nearly 200 big jobs in, in, in the NHS, so that's chief executive jobs, and we only have four people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds um, that are chief executive officers, and we have something like 300,000 uh, nurses, 350,000 nurses across the board, 20% of them from black and minority ethnic backgrounds, yet we only have one executive director of nursing. So. Clearly there's something that, that, that's not working very well in the NHS around black and minority ethnic staff. And what we've tried to do over many, many years is to put systems and processes and structures into place to actually try to address that. So we have 
you know, the legal case, which is supposed to help people to actually make sure that they have systems that will address legally um, the rights of people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. We've had the uh, the case of, of, of the moral case, making sure that people do the, do, the, do the right thing and so on. We now are in a place where we are actually trying to get people to understand the, quali- the quality case around this. So what we have in the NHS is a situation where if you are from a black and minority ethnic background, you are less likely to be uh, selected to go on development programs. You are less likely to be um, promoted into a higher level job. You are more likely to be disciplined and you're more likely to be um, dismissed from your jobs. And this is all evidence-based. We have all of that information about what goes on in the NHS as far as black and minority ethnic staff are concerned. And what we what we know now is as a consequence of that, it makes staff disengaged. It makes people feel um, that they don't belong. And what we're beginning to realize is that that isn't a good thing for patient care. Um, and we know that we have to, to do something differently, do things in a very, very different way to ensure that all staff feel that they belong to the NHS and that they're part of the Constitution and that ultimately there's something in it, not only for them, but, but, but for patients of color as well. Because consistently we, we, we do um, staff, um, staff satisfaction surveys and patient satisfaction surveys and over many years what we found is that people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds that are working in the NHS are more or less likely to say that they are satisfied with working in the NHS and patients from black and minority ethnic backgrounds say that they're less likely to actually get the service that they they, they deserve um, they feel that access is poor they don't get the services that they want so that's their perception and and and, and it's it's obviously very very real for them so so we have a problem and um, we recognize that, that there is a huge problem around this and so my job is to get senior leaders to recognize that to understand that and to start doing something about it so what we have started to do is a lot of work around engagement and we're starting to do um, a lot of work around engaging staff and making sure that all staff feel part of the organization so what does that look like it means that senior leaders have to recognize and understand that it isn't just about making sure that that people like themselves are promoted have additional help and support go on to training and development programs it's about making sure that that all senior leaders understand that unless they um, join the dots on making sure that all staff that are working in their organizations actually feel part of what's going on high-quality patient care is not going to happen. And we've had a lot of issues and problems and difficulties over the last few years with, um, with poor patient care across, across the board. And what we're discovering is that the more staff feel disengaged, demoralized, demotivated, the, the worse it becomes for patients and the less patients will be able to have uh, what they deserve in, ta- in terms of care. So we're doing a lot of work on inclusivity and engagement across the board of all members of staff to make sure that people get that, uh, the, the, um, understand that unless they 
engage with their staff, all staff, this is the, the consequences will be poor patient care. So my job is to actually talk to, to, to senior leaders about this and get them to understand the correlation between high quality patient care and making sure that black and ethnic minority staff, of which there are very many in the NHS, feel part of something that's going on. So that means having role models at very, very senior levels, of which we have very, very few. It means top leaders genuinely wanting to make a difference and talking about this, but not only talking about it, doing something demonstrable to show that they actually believe in, in, in making sure that everybody within their organization um, has, has equal opportunities and are able to fulfill um, to their full potential, be as good as they could possibly be. It means that they have to tap everybody on the shoulder, as it were, to make sure that they know that they are part of what's going on and that all staff feel encouraged, enabled, empowered and part of, of the, the NHS family. And, and we've, we've got some evidence to show that, that when that happens, patient care improves, patient satisfaction improves. And in fact, we have had a, a, a lot of work done recently by Professor Mike West, who actually talks about staff engagement and the, the things that you need to do to actually make sure that people understand uh, a lot more about um, health inequalities and what goes on in terms of um, um, equalities. So what we're asking people to do is to gain deeper understanding of people that are different and actually to make sure that they actually uh, try to um, engage with and be, and be part of other people's cultures. So we do lots of things about bringing people together, talking and so on and so forth, just to make sure that people feel comfortable together. And we try to make sure that people train together because when people train together, they're much more relaxed and they're able to be actually get to know each other much better. We've told people that they have to use more carrot and less stick. And what does that mean? It means using less disciplinary processes and procedures because what happens is that black and minority ethnic staff um, believe that they are more likely to be disciplined if they do, uh, do anything wrong. And how that plays out is that they're less likely to actually say when they've made a mistake. Subsequently, that can actually impact on patient care. And we want people to actually talk about if they have made a mistake or if they have been a problem with patient care, they need to feel free enough to be able to own it and to admit it and to say it, say that. So we're trying to get people to actually talk some more. And we're asking our senior leaders to be real champions of, uh, of inclusivity. Uh, we try not to talk too much about diversity and equality because it, sort, it kind of switches people off um, because I think a lot of people think, oh, here they, here they go again with the race thing. So we talk about quality of care for patients and we talk about inclusivity of all of our staff as, uh, and as a consequence of that making sure that it stacks up for all of our patients. Wow. Okay. You did quite, you told us quite a bit. And Yvonne shared even more slides that uh, we can, you can download. And thank you so much. I'd be really curious as we turn to Andrew, and then we'll go to chat right after that, Andrew Lair. Uh, feel free to chat in if you have some interesting, comparable uh, corollaries around staff diversity and leadership diversity in your own organization. Uh, this is an example of something that's going on at the NHS. 
DHS that I think is is very, very uh, focused and deliberate. We'd love to know uh, what might be going on in your own organizations as well. So thanks, Yvonne, and uh, hopefully we'll get to more with questions. So Andrew uh, Lair is uh, doing some very, very interesting work, um, uh, really kind of teeing off the fact that we've had health reform and health insurance uh, mobilization here in the state of Massachusetts now for several years uh, ahead of the nation, and that gives some opportunity to see what's going on uh, with um, equity and disparities. So, Andrew, take it away. Thanks, Madge. Uh, Dave, uh, David, Tessa, and Yvonne uh, just highlighted some very unique uh, and impactful ways to address disparities within certain health systems. However, identifying and, and influencing disparities at a population level has remained uh, pretty challenging over the last, um, well, well, the last century. Um, and this is in large part due to uh, considerable overlap between non-white race, lower socioeconomic status, uh, lower education, utilization of poor quality hospitals, and some challenges in patient uh, provider dynamics. Uh, additionally, one of the most frequently cited uh, drivers of disparities in the United States has been the uh, differential insurance coverage for non-white uh, patients. Now, the 2010 Affordable Care Act aims to try to address this by expanding health insurance uh, across the country. Uh, and the Affordable Care Act was modeled after previous reforms in uh, the state of Massachusetts. Uh, like the Affordable Care Act, Massachusetts aimed to increase the number of insured uh, in, Mass- in the state uh, through expansion of Medicaid eligibility, uh, the creation of a government subsidized insurance program for those who were uh, of low income uh, but didn't quite qualify for Medicaid. They also extended the young adult eligibility on parental plans uh, and, indiv- and implemented uh, the individual mandate, which required all residents uh, in the Commonwealth uh, to carry health insurance. Now, since enactment uh, in Massachusetts in 2006, uh, the law has gone to uh, cover over 98% of the population. Now, non-white patients, uh, both black and Hispanic, saw particularly striking gains with uninsurance rates being around 18%. Um, uh, at the time of enactment in Massachusetts, and that's fallen to about 5% presently. Uh, However, the question remained whether or not this disproportionate gain in insurance coverage impacted inequity uh, in certain outcomes, including the management of surgical disease. So there we, in in our work, we've looked at a number of specific disease processes that have well-documented and persistent disparities by patient race. Uh, For instance, minimally invasive surgery is now the optimal approach uh, for certain procedures. Uh, yet non-white patients are significantly less likely uh, to receive this approach as compared to white patients. Looking at Massachusetts, we found that non-white patients had an increased uh, likelihood of receiving a minimally invasive surgery as opposed to an open procedure the old-fashioned way after reform as compared to concurrent trends in a variety of control states. Furthermore, racial disparities in the receipt of minimally invasive surgery decreased and were no longer even detectable in Massachusetts after reform while those gaps persisted in control states. Looking uh, more specifically at the the diagnosis of acute cholecystitis, uh, surgery is uh, the optimal treatment for that. It's been shown to have uh, improved uh, quality of life for the patient, decreased overall costs uh, when 
patients receive an immediate cholecystectomy versus medical management or a delayed uh, surgical procedure. We found that non-white patients were significantly less likely to receive this procedure, both in Massachusetts and control states prior uh, to reform. However, this gap decreased and was no longer detectable in Massachusetts after reform, while the racial disparity persisted in control states. Finally, we looked at vascular disease, lower extremity arterial disease, which for a variety of reasons, including the American diet, smoking, um, variety of comorbidities, including diabetes, is becoming an increasing problem across the United States. Non-white patients are more likely to present with severe disease, which threatens the salvageability of that limb. Subsequently, uh, non-white patients have higher rates of amputation uh, and significantly more morbidity from this diagnosis. We looked at Massachusetts and a variety of control states again, and we found that there was a significant decrease, over a 14 uh, percentage point decrease, or about a 14 percentage point decrease uh, in the probability of presenting with severe disease for non-white patients in Massachusetts versus changes in control states. Similarly, looking at the disparities before and after reform, uh, we found that the disparities in severe disease um, decreased and were no longer significant in Massachusetts, while this gap by patient race persisted uh, in control states. So in sum, at least in looking at these three studies, uh, our, our findings all suggest that the insurance expansion across the large population, not targeted specifically at non-white patients, but looking at across the population, uh, did have a meaningful impact on racial disparities uh, in, the, in the state of Massachusetts. Now the question remains whether or not similar expansions that will occur as a part of the Affordable Care Act will affect disparities elsewhere in the country. Massachusetts is unique in many ways. Um, uh, however, our findings are at least optimistic and provide some promising uh, uh, evidence that disparities can be affected by population-wide implementation, which has been a challenge uh, over the last century. Now, moving ahead, we're going to need to continue to look at disparities within Massachusetts, um, particularly with upcoming finance reform and how we fund health care in the Commonwealth, um, and, and with, a, with a particular eye on uh, minority and marginalized communities that are going to remain vulnerable to uh, uh, financial changes from a, from a large uh, from a large uh, state policy level or a payer level. Uh, similarly, we need to look elsewhere in the country as different states implement the Affordable Care Act to various degrees, um, see how this, uh, po- how this population level expansion will influence uh, disparities. Uh, and I, I think finally and most importantly, uh, a variety of complex, chronic, and multi-process diseases are going are gonna to need uh, multiple angles uh, to address these. I'm thinking about cancer care or comorbidities such as diabetes, um, and, and really frontline interventions uh, like that at, at health partners uh, and, and strong leadership within health systems as, as defined uh, by Yvonne are going to be critical um, so we can really address this from a population level, health systems level, and really a frontline level um, to really get a grasp on these disparities moving forward. So I look forward to the questions, comments, any ideas that we have from the participants uh, in, in the subsequent discussion we'll have here. All right. Thank you so much, Andrew. And uh, we did eat in a little bit to our uh, ch- uh, chat time or formal Q&A time, although that definitely you guys have already gotten going uh, in, in the uh, online chat here, so that's terrific. 
we've hit on a lot of different areas, and I'm just going to steal one more um, moment here. I want to go back uh, to Health Partners for a moment and to David and Tessa, either one of you. And I'm curious whether, uh, indeed, the Affordable Care Act changes that will be going on with insurance and health policy in your state might in any way kind of hook up nicely with some of the work that you're doing and whether you are acting as, in some sense, an exemplar for others uh, in, in, in the city, in your city, and in, in the community at large. Well, I guess if I could explain the impact of the Affordable Care Act, uh, we would be spending another hour. Yes. <laughs> but uh, we're still letting that play out in the state, and, and obviously it's been uh, widely uh, reported nationally, just some of the struggles getting patients, um, you know, obviously um, signed up for their insurance. So I, I think, you know, that piece of it is yet to play out. Certainly as a group, we're very supportive of the expansion of our patients having coverage. Um, it's it's extremely important, especially when you uh, are talking about things like preventative services and other things that people may delay without having that coverage. So obviously the persuasion is, is a much easier task if we have a little help uh, 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 on the insurance side of things. We happen to be an integrated system. I noticed there was a question posted about uh, kind of how you engage health plans and uh, there's an advantage of being an integrated system with the health plan, a medical group, and hospital uh, care and um, the health plan has been very supportive and in fact involved in our work and disparities and um, they're a significant player. They have their own quality improvement um, projects and many of them focused on disparities but it really it starts from our CEO on down from that standpoint as far as the, the focus, but um, I, I think it's it's really hard for me to comment on kind of the ACA and how that might play uh, in some of our disparities work. Okay, thank you very much. To add to that, Magic? Oh, please, go ahead. Add to that? So I think, you know, one of the things that isn't addressed is affordability in the Affordable Care Act, but uh, as Dave mentioned, we've got the, uh, we've got a care delivery side, we've got hospitals, and we've got the insurance side, so one thing that we've been better positioned to do is uh, work with uh, more uh, like shared saving contracts and uh, with our partners um, and with the state experimenting with uh, payment options for both our internal providers and then also groups that we contract with based on disparity outcomes and based on other quality metrics, but trying to uh, include that as part of the payment models have been something that we've been really trying to focus on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, John, maybe we'll, uh, do you want to just make sure uh, the people uh, who aren't already chatting know know how to chat real quickly? Yep, just go ahead and uh, make sure that you, when you uh, ask any of your questions to our guests or our panelists online that you send to all participants down there in the bottom right-hand corner of the chat window. All right. Thanks very much. There, there was a question, uh, and this maybe goes back to health partners, but anyone's welcome to jump in about almost how the tools for doing these sorts of assessments. In other words, uh, you're a provider or an integrated system or something, and uh, I know David and Tessa, you talked about uh, early on starting to gather data. Um, you know, I, there's an interest in sort of how you do those kinds of assessments. And Improvement World talks a lot about that and the kind of data you might want to be collecting 
connecting, the way to go about that, how people get kind of trained in doing that. I, I see Andrew's nodding, so I might ask if you want to sort of jump in with that, and then we'll see what maybe Health Partners also has to say. Yeah, I, I am, I'm interested to hear what Health Partners has yeah. to say, as they've been really been on the front line doing this. Uh, I know that, you know, another one of the hats that I wear is working with the Disparity Solution Center at the Massachusetts General Hospital, uh, where over the last five, ten years, they've developed disparities dashboards for each division within the hospital. Um, and you're not going to really be able to address disparities until you measure them. So what they look at is specific outcomes within divisions, as, been, as is appropriate, um, and look at outcomes and how they're doing, whether it's length of stay, whether it's immunizations in the primary care provide, uh, setting, or whether it's uh, obstetrical outcomes. Um, and that takes a lot of work, um, and, and they would certainly be able to speak to that a lot better um, than I would. Um, but I, I do think that the the importance of first measuring it, um, getting people on the ground uh, who know what to measure, um, and then doing it consistently over um, an extended period of time is crucial. Okay, thank you. I do want to thank uh, those of you who are uh, maybe from Ed in particular who put in something from Ontario, Canada, the Health Equity Impact Assessment Tool Template and Workbook, uh, which looks like it's coming from um, health.gov in, in Canada. So thank you for that resource. It will be interesting to follow up on that. Uh, Tessa or uh, David, anything you want to say about that sort of data collection? Um, I, you know, I don't know if I can add much more to what Andrew added. Okay. I, we we have talked on this topic around the country, and I I really want to be careful. We haven't figured all this out. Nobody's figured <laughs> all of this out. Um, but it amazes me how many are still at just the basic data collection stage. And again, we you know it's been a decade long process for us. But really, uh, instituting the power of your electronic health record, um, it, it you know meaningful use is going to very soon start having criteria around how we use it around measuring disparities. Um, and so, you know, use that power, but first you really have to basically just do the race and language collection. Then you can start using the power of the tool to report on any, you know, outcome screening measure you'd like to. And then it's a process of, frankly, saying where do you have the largest gaps of those? Where do you think you can make a difference? And starting with Starting small, starting with one intervention on a given gap, and 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 being okay with piloting that, trying at a, at a few uh, small clinics or areas, seeing if it has an impact. If it does, spread. If it doesn't, move on to the next intervention. So I I think just as a process, I guess that's that's sort of what we've put in place. Thank you. Building it into your into your uh, your clinic process when when your staff is bringing or bringing patients back, they're asking, you know, do you want a flu shot and are you still taking these medications? Also asking the questions, what is your self-reported rate? What is your language? And patients have been in our experience open to answering those questions, and they can always say no. Okay, thank you. Uh, Don. Yeah, so I was going to ask a little bit more about. Um, how you meet the patient where they are uh, according to their preferences, their culture, their circumstances and environment. And sometimes when I listen uh, on the national scene, uh, you hear people talking about cultural competency as if that's the answer. Mm -hmm. And I don't even like the term personally cultural competency. I tend to use cultural sensitivity or sensibility, uh, whatever. Uh, I, I don't think it's uh, sufficient. It's necessary, perhaps. But how do you, at, 
uh, in your organizations at, uh, where, where you work at MGH or in Health Partners, how do you actually uh, get your clinicians, your providers ready to have those conversations? So if I can just give a slight uh, twist on this, we know that uh, some patients come to the uh, conversation with their provider with certain um, assumptions, uh, historical assumptions sometimes about unequal treatment, or they may come with social influences. We know that from a number of studies of renal transplantation, for example, that uh, the social influences people are exposed to uh, may uh, make them wary about, let's say, undergoing a transplant. How how do you prepare your staff to deal with those kinds of uh, really difficult problems? So that's a question kind of all around the horn. Um, maybe uh, just to kind of, you know, keep spreading uh, <laughs> uh, spreading things around. Yvonne, why don't you sort of jump in here? I know you're working very much on sort of the staff uh, leadership level, but any any uh, replies at all to sort of Don's uh, point? Um, I think it relates to there are a couple of other questions in the chat almost about how staff, uh, in fact, yeah. early on begin to get a sense about uh, equity, not only within the workforce, but also in their engagement with patients. No, absolutely, and, and I, I, I totally agree with Don when he, he talks about, you know, the cultural competency thing, because people do talk about being culturally competent, and, and what does that mean? We have, you know, so many different cultures. Um, what we're looking at here is, is, is engagement of all members of staff, so everybody everybody begins to feel that they are part of something really important and really big. And we've had some really difficult situations over here in the UK due to lack of staff engagement, and I won't go into them in depth and detail, but what we know is that in organizations um, that have really engaged staff, you get high-quality patient satisfaction and care. And in fact, uh, I've I've, I've mentioned Professor Mike West already, but some of the work that he has done has shown that one of the best indicators of patient satisfaction or one of the correlations that really, really show that patients are going to get high-quality care is by measuring the satisfaction of your black and minority ethnic staff. And that work is now uh, filtering through, I think, and people are beginning to understand that we need to do things very, very differently if we want to make sure that our patients get high-quality care. So this isn't uh, about, you know, making sure that your black and ethnic minority staff get, you know, a good deal or making sure that they get high, you know, high-level positions. This is, this is very focused on patient care. And what we're realizing now is that unless we do something, do things differently, have different types of leaders that demonstrate by their behaviors, by their values, by their attitudes, that they are inclusive leaders, that we're not going to improve patient care. And particularly now in the UK, where, where funding is at a premium, you know, we're in a situation where we don't have as much money as we had the last 10 years to, to actually spend on health care. So what we need is, is increased productivity, and product, that productivity has to come from our staff being more engaged. Okay, thanks. Any thoughts at all? I mean, I guess, Don, in some sense, your question is sort of a, 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 you know, a challenge, you know, kind of even going forward. People are asking a little bit about patient-centered care and meeting the patient where they are, and you're asking kind of how does that combine um, with a kind of cultural sensitivity? Yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. A, there's a skill set involved, yes. not, not just uh, digging deep into your own 
perceptions and uh, sometimes things we're not even aware of that influence how we uh, behave towards patients. But there is a skill set. I mean, it's sort of a big difference between the slalom and the half pipe at the Olympics. And, and you know, this, this requires different skills and they need to be practiced. And I'm not sure that we're really grappling with that over and above some training in cultural competency. So it is a, a challenge and I, I think something we need to really confront. Okay. Well, thank you. Well, feel free to chat in anyone uh, your your thoughts at all about that, about maybe making this aspect of cultural sensitivity and the skills needed uh, to go uh, further. Um, I'm curious, and again, I don't know if this goes back to Tessa and David, we had talked about well-intentioned um, mistakes that can be made along the way, or things that don't um, kind of move the dial, and what you can learn from that. Are there any things that we might sort of flag in, in that area? Um, yeah, I, you know, I think when we first started a lot of the um, disparity intervention work, a lot was focused on, you know, how do we educate, how do we, you know, create a greater awareness, which is certainly important with patients, um, but what's the right way to do that? And, and you know, simply putting packets of information together, you know, that might be language-specific or something, we think, gosh, you know, what a great idea, and we tried that, and, you know, you know, didn't see that that really made much difference. We we recorded videos uh, with our uh, again our uh, various physicians, Hmong and Somali, etc., on uh, explaining about screening services that we actually launched in the exam room with patients. Uh, um, you know, the appropriate one while they were waiting for the provider. That was better, um, but it create you know it's an operational challenge for for frankly our clinic systems. Um, then we recorded, uh, we tried the same thing, recording videos where a patient um, agreed graciously to provide their own testimonial, a Somali woman who has had breast cancer and some of the feelings about screening services uh, within, you know, her culture, and that was a powerful um, uh, impact with patients, and we've used that both in a very short version in an exam room and a longer version when we've gone out to do community uh, discussions and found that that, you know, was much more powerful. Um, I, I think to Don's question, too, it's, it's important. We've spent a lot of time trying to educate and, and work with our clinicians around this issue, and it's not simple. So uh, one thing we have shared with them is uh, something put together by our, one of our clinics is the Center for International Health. Uh, run by Dr. Pat Walker and um, put together a, just a very short 13-minute video uh, explaining the LEARN model for our clinicians. And it's really while you're in the exam room, gaining how do you gain trust and respect of that patient? And frankly, this could be used regardless whether it's patients of color or white patients. But it, it's based on the LEARN, listen, explain, acknowledge, recommend, and negotiate. And I think, you know, listen to where they're coming from acknowledge that they have different views and beliefs about some of our care and Western care, and then negotiate with them about what can we do before our next visit? What would they agree to? And um, we, we tend to jump to solutions in healthcare very quickly. We, we, we think we have the right answer, but we haven't taken the time to essentially build trust with patients. Thanks a lot, uh, David. 
Um, I was going to go back uh, a little bit to you, Andrew, and your reference to population health, uh, which we're still kind of wrapping our arms around in terms of what all comes into that now that we do also have the Affordable Care Act and an expansion of insurance, et cetera. What's your sense of whether this is kind of a, a pivot point at all in sort of a policy way, um, and that will help on, on the disparities. I mean, you're doing your research. Uh, do you have a, a lot of company in that space right now? There's an increasing number of, of uh, researchers that are looking at access and disparities, and particularly health policy and how it affects populations. Um, I, I, I think our work is promising on how policy can influence, but I will say, you know, additionally, that I think it's important to note that, you know, studies out of the NHS or studies out of the VA or the veterans hospitals here have shown documented disparities, and these are all systems with more or less universal access. So access isn't the solution to everything. Uh, and, I, and I think with a, with a growing cadre of, of young professionals looking at uh, multiple fronts to address disparities from a policy level, from a health systems leadership and a, and a frontline quality improvement uh, level, um, all of these will uh, will increase. And I do think that there's a growing number of people that are um, looking at disparities in a more sophisticated way rather than simply documenting their ongoing persistence. Okay, thank you very much. Well, as we're sort of heading to the top of the hour, I think I'm going to use uh, that comment of Andrew's there as kind of looking forward, and I think I'm going to go around the horn here very quickly. It's amazing how fast this hour speeds by. Uh, We did, you know, put out a lot of different uh, pots of of things to think about here, and we hope you will continue to pursue uh, this topic. We know IHI will be working on it at many levels as well, and we hope to be continuing to convene things like this. Uh, Tessa and David, let me just ask you kind of uh, what's on the immediate horizon uh, in the work and and what you're going to be working on now uh, as you continue to, um, you know, with, with the good stuff that you've already done and are doing? Um, yeah, it's a, a great question. It's sort of the what's next, and I, I think the what's next and keep doing what you're doing that's worked. Um, we have, uh, we, I think we can do a lot better with our um, engagement of the community and our outreach to the community, and we've instituted a partnership between our medical group and our uh, IME department Um around a program called EBON. And it's not an acronym, it's actually a, a symbol in Ghana, but it, it, it refers to kind of security and uh, togetherness and health. And what that uh, has represented for us is we've uh, used community advisors, we call them, and engaged them in uh, work groups that are specifically doing QI projects to improve uh, and decrease disparities and improve, um, again, our care for all. And it's been extremely helpful, even just walking patients through the experience of having different services and hearing their feedback um, has been very helpful. And our most recent over the past year was what we've called uh, diabetes 3D, uh, decreasing diabetic disparities, and we've had an EBON group, specifically African-American community advisors, working with us about this very issue of how do we raise the level of trust, 
how do we talk to patients in a different meaningful way instead of just you know talking at them and telling them what we'd like them to do but asking them what they think they could do and uh, setting goals in a shared way um, and we, we're still learning from that work but our hope is we'll find some nuggets that we can spread to clinics across our system. Well you're a great uh, beacon I think for all of us in, in, in having some very very grounded uh, work going on in some critical clinical areas so really want to thank you David and Tessa a great deal um, for being part of the program today we'll continue to learn from you Yvonne uh, very quickly kind of uh, w- what might we hear about next <laughs> well well we're very fortunate we, we have um, somebody coming over to the UK from from Harvard actually Dr. David R. Williams is going to be coming to the UK to talk to all of our top leaders about the links between health and race because we feel that, that that's something that's been been missed and we really would like our top leaders to get to grips with the actual connection between um, health disparities or health inequalities as we call them and, and, and race. So we're really, really blessed and very lucky to have him coming over to help help us think through how our top leaders can actually start to, to, to behave in ways that are more inclusive so that we can get better outcomes for all of our patients. So, so that's something that we're doing. We're also working with our um, black and ethnic minority staff in the NHS because one of the things that we've not discussed and debated is as a consequence of, of constantly feeling um, not part of something, what that actually does to people. Um, so we're, we're, we're starting to run programs with people about their confidence, about who they are, about what it is that they can do, what, what they can add and bring to the part, the health party as it were, to make things better, not only for themselves, but also for for patients. So we're trying to do some work with our top BME leaders to get them to a place where they're going to be, um, I suppose, better able to to withstand some of the the issues and the difficulties that they do actually encounter as senior leaders in the NHS. So some of that kind of work we're going to be doing. So it's all very exciting stuff, but it's going to be um, a challenge. Um, but, But I'm quite positive about it, and I think that there, there are things that we can do um, to actually make a difference for all our patients and staff in the NHS. So. Well- Thank you so much. Really appreciated getting even just a, a glimmer of what's going on, and we'll be thrilled to uh, catch up on the, uh, the progress of all of this. So thank you, Yvonne. Don, you had the kind of uh, first word and the last word. Uh, that's, that, that's great. So uh, first, it's been great uh, listening to some of these examples. Uh, if if uh, the part, some of the videos I've seen from health partners on the community work are available, they're very inspirational to see uh, how they've been doing that work. Um, I'll just uh, remind us all that we are improvers and there are certain principles that we apply in improving uh, health and health care and we uh, need to stand by those. Uh, among them are alignment with leadership, clear goals, clear aims, uh, an intolerance for uh, departing from those goals and aims. And I think in the area of equity, some organizations have been great at that, and a great many of organizations have not been very good at that. So that's first. Secondly, the, the scientific improvement um, methods that we have are applicable to this issue, but they can't be applied blindly as if uh, differences don't exist among uh, cultural and ethnic racial groups. There are differences, and there are differences among the people within those groups. One of the problems with cultural competency is that it tends to lump 
people who happen to be black together or people who happen to be uh, from Asia together, and that's that's silly. I mean, there's oh. people are all different, and within those categories, there are huge differences uh, as well. So we have to keep that in mind. And and finally, just because we have a solution in one place, in one context, in one organization like Health Partners or MGH, that doesn't mean it's going to apply equally well to a critical access hospital in North Dakota. Uh, so context is important. Learning uh, what uh, we can from other organizations and then adapting them and applying to our own context is absolutely critical. All right. Wow. Okay. Thank you, Don Goldman. Thank you, Andrew Lair. Thank you, David Johnson. Uh, big thank you also to Tessa Kirby and Yvonne Cago. This has just been terrific. And we hope you, each of you who joined today and were very active on the chat uh, got something that you can walk away with and think about and talk about with others as well. And please uh, watch for the link on IHI.org uh, to all the archived material, all the resources. Uh, thank you also for filling out the survey at the end of the show so we know what we might have done well and can always do better. And next up on WIHI on February 27th, we're going to be taking a look at skilled nursing facilities and some of the interesting work that's going on to reduce readmissions there. And that information is already available on the website. You can download the chat, the slides when you get off the program today. Um, and if you feel like it, uh, chat away uh, on uh, Facebook, um, where Jane Rossner will put up some information following uh, today's program as well. Any questions whatsoever, you're looking for anything, just have a question, excuse me, about this WIHI or any WIHI, you can always email info at IHI.org. Great group of people help make WIHI possible. Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Matt Morse, and Tala Augustine. Uh, we had some help from Marie today. We also had a wonderful help from the Open School and the Diversity and Inclusion Council here at IHI. Big shout out to them as well. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care. Most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Thanks for joining. Good day, everyone. Thank you.